listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Hello, my name is Marie Lemensch. Welcome to the Coronavirus Diaries. Today, I'm very happy to talk to Andres Serbin-Font, who is the director of the South American think tank FRIES. Welcome, Andres. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. No, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure participating. So could you tell perhaps first about what the organization does in, in general? So we're a Buenos Aires-based regional think tank, and we're based on a network of civil society organizations, research centers, and individual academics that are working throughout Central America, South America and the Caribbean. Diverging issues, but mainly focused on foreign policy issues, human rights, conflict prevention, mass atrocity prevention, and regional integration, right? And we have multiple publications, uh, books, or academic journal that comes out every six months, uh, policy briefs, and so on. And we try to engage with other civil society organizations, uh, policymakers, policy informers, and so on. Okay, thank you. Um... First, I want to talk about the region in, in, in kind of general terms. What's the situation like there where you are or um, where is, is the virus evolving fast? Is the situation evolving fast? Where are we in terms of, of borders between countries, for example? Well, the situation is evolving at different rates in different parts of the region. We have to keep in mind that it's a lot of countries, it's three dozen countries that we have in the region almost. Um, and some cases, such as Ecuador, Chile, Brazil, it's evolving quite fast, the situation. They have a lot of cases. They have a lot of deaths. They've taken very different measures to counter the epidemic. Other countries, it's growing a bit more slowly, and there's been more uh, solid response by state actors uh, regarding the, the, the virus. And in some other countries, we just lack a lot of information or there's serious questions regarding even the capacity of the state to really identify the reach of the pandemic. So it's, it's diverging and it's really hard to monitor as a whole because the scenarios are quite different from country to country. Mm -hmm. So let's talk perhaps about with Brazil, because it's been in the uh, even in the media here quite quite a lot, because its leader Jair Bolsonaro has called the virus a little flu. He has dismissed strong measures taken by other governments. He claims that Brazilians have some natural immunity that would protect them from the virus. And the um, magazine The Atlantic has called him kind of the the face or leader of the coronavirus um, denial movement. First, how does this attitude kind of fit the persona that is uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who has often held very kind of xenophobic, anti-immigration, kind of nationalist speeches before? I think that that's an adequate depiction of him. I think we can also add to him that his cabinet has not exactly been one composed by people that are either considered 
professionals or adequately trained or even have any scientific interest in the policies that they're conducting. And it's kind of reflecting to a certain extent in the current decisions. In many ways, this need to underplay the situation, to uh, not take any bold moves that might risk the economic situation in, in Brazil. Uh, I think that a lot of viewers might be able to relate to that, especially in the Northern Hemisphere. Trying to avoid that response to to not go into a deep uh, economic recession. But as the situation is progressing, he's finding himself in a situation where he can now hardly deny the fact that this is an ongoing problem and that it is going to grow and that he needs to take some action. So a week ago, for example, he announced that he had bought 5 million test kits in order to start being able to test Brazilians. But at the same time, he was still making points like the one that you mentioned, that Brazilians have some sort of immunity because they've been exposed to other uh, situations and therefore, you know, this is just a flu or something similar to that. So right now he's being a bit incoherent. At times he's talking about the pandemic as a serious issue and at other times he still tries to downplay it. So it's, is it, what's the political calculation behind it? I mean, is it just, he's just fearful that if there is a, an economic downturn, which is likely to happen, his, his, uh, leadership might be um, criticized. Definitely. And and he's in a tough situation right now because economy is a strong part of his agenda and it is important for him politically and electorally, but he's receiving a lot of internal pressure. So it's, it's not even all that clear if, if this is a well through, uh, thought through political strategy in the Brazilian context, because a lot of the governors and, and, and the local governments are standing up to him and saying, hey, we need to treat this like mm -hmm. the pandemic it is. Um, and the economy is going to suffer one way or the other. What we need to do is save lives. Um, and he still hasn't fully responded that, to that either. Uh, but his main worry has been, you know, what will be the economic effects in a year that originally was projected as one of growth for Brazil after several very difficult years in Brazil, right? So for him, it was particularly important to ensure growth in this year in, in Brazil. And that's definitely not going to be the case because now all the projections are for a contraction of the economy in 2020. Mm -hmm. And how has um, how have legislators reacted and how has the population reacted to this? Because I've heard there was some anger growing among the population. There's definitely a lot of um, anger and distrust in the decisions he's making regarding the pandemic. Uh, what we have seen also is that a lot of the state uh, governments as well as local governments taking the decision making into their own hands. So a lot of the governors have said, hey, you know, you're not applying a national quarantine at a national level. Okay, we're gonna push forward that at a, on a state level basis. And actually a lot of the state governors agreed on this and pushed forward and impl uh, implemented the quarantines without having uh, instituted a national quarantine. So, and, and this is something that we've seen in other countries and, and, and that we can also discuss like Argentina, for example, as when you start to see a lack of central command to face the pandemic, uh, the local and the regional governments start taking the decision-making process into their own hands. And sometimes the decisions are not the most adequate ones. Sometimes they are. But that also ends up corroding the capacities of national governments to really react to the situation. Mm -hmm. I know that Facebook and, and Twitter have actually taken actions against some of the information that uh, Jerry Bolsonaro um, you know, some spread on social media. What do you think about this? Um, 
this news because it, it's quite rare for tech companies and social media giants to, to actually remove messages shared by, by leaders. Yeah, well, in the case of Bolsonaro, he was spreading misinformation, outright misinformation. And, but he was the only case in which we've seen, you know, such a, um, such a clear cut decision of eliminating that message. We, we've seen Maduro in Venezuela also give out some false information that was also raised to uh, regarding a special tea that you could make at home to cure coronavirus. Um, and then we had the case in Argentina where the president referred to information that was going around in a fake WhatsApp message mm -hmm. uh, regarding, you know, drinking a lot of hot water to avoid infection and so on. That one didn't get erased from social media, but it is the truth is it wasn't like an actual tweet or Facebook post. It was just reference. It was um, a radio interview that was later referenced on social media. So it was a bit different than the pattern. But I mean, it makes sense considering how much emphasis a lot of these social media companies are making on trying to get the right information out there. And, and we're looking at this through Twitter. We, we can see it on Facebook. We can see it on, on Instagram. And we can see it on TikTok even. You know, mm -hmm. they're making sure that the correct messages are being sent out to deal with the pandemic. So let's move on to uh, Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela has been facing a humanitarian, economic, political crisis for, for months. And can you tell us a little bit about why Venezuela is completely unprepared to, de to, to face this pandemic? What's the state of, of hospital, access to water, access to food and, and you know, good sanitation? It's, it's probably very low. Well, Venezuela has been under humanitarian emergency for well over two years, depending on, on the expert that you consult on the subject and, and where you define the beginning of the humanitarian emergency. But truth is that the larger portion of Venezuelans do not have access to regular drinking water. Sanitation services are completely collapsed. Uh, there's no medical supplies. A lot of the professional medical staff have left the country over the last four mm -hmm. or five years. There is an absolute lack of state capacity to deal with current ongoing medical situations in Venezuela. There's been the resurgence of multiple diseases that had in the past been eliminated in Venezuela, and now we're seeing them come back up. So the pandemic, the, the coronavirus pandemic, just adds on to that. And while the rest of the, the countries in the region, we tend to see that, you know, there's reduced state capacity, there's uh, health systems that can easily be overrun by the pandemic. In Venezuela, we pretty much see the absence of a health system because it's been collapsed to the point that, you know, there's not enough intensive therapy beds at all. Mm. You know, the, the, some of the estimates say that in total or across the country, you would have 85, maybe 90 intensive care units in total across a 30 million country. Mm. You know, the population is large and you have very few capacities. And on top of that, you know, you have to add the fact of, mass displacements of populations, you know, and, and this is what ends up affecting a lot of countries in the region too. And, and do you think Maduro might use this opportunity to crack down even more on dissent? Because we know that in, during state of emergencies, authoritarian leaders tend to actually want to, to really take more control over everything. And he's doing exactly that. Um, what he's done is that a large portion of the response has been militarized. So that's mm -hmm. helped him further justify the militarization of Venezuelan society, which was already a very militarized society, right? 
but the fact that a lot of the response is through militarization um, it also speaks a lot of what the intentions are regarding the manipulation of the crisis, right? Because there's a very low recognition of the cases, which is in part attributed as trying to transmit the idea that they can control the situation, but it also is linked to the very low capacity to actually conduct testing in Venezuela right now. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to control the numbers and they're using those numbers also to justify this increasing militarization. And what we're seeing is the army going down the streets and just arrest, arresting masses of people for not wearing face masks, for example. Even when we know that it's not proven mm -hmm. a preventive measure to wear the face masks in public, he has implemented a policy that everybody in public spaces has to wear a face mask. Okay. And those who do not are then arrested. Um, <laughs> But, you know, there's even been a couple of situations in which people linked to opposition leaders or opposition leaders themselves have been threatened with being pointed out as having coronavirus and have to be detained in order to conduct testing and so on. Right. So it's even going to that extreme in which they're saying, you know, we if you step out of line, we're going to accuse you of being contagious and going to take forceful measures to do mm -hmm. the testing and so on. So they're definitely exploiting the situation in their favor. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that um, a lot of Venezuelans over the past two years have left the country. So I guess they found refuge in neighboring countries. How can we? How can governments now deal also with with the refugees and immigrants that fled the uh, the country? Well, that's one of the growing issues, especially in countries like uh, Colombia, Brazil, Ecuador, and Peru, which have been the main recipients, but also of the Caribbean countries, which in many cases they have even smaller state capacities to deal with this situation. But we're talking around 5 million refugees. So uh, if we compare it to a Syrian refugee crisis, it's second in the world in terms of the amount of refugees that have actually left the country. Somewhere between 1.5 and 2.5 million are actually in Colombia, which already has problems uh, of its own regarding the health system. And this is something that you see both on the border, but also many of the cities more in the center of the country that have been profoundly affected by this huge flow of people in very vulnerable conditions and that we're already uh, many times affected by the lack of sanitation facilities in Venezuela and part of their motivation to, for leaving Venezuela was being able to access health services abroad, right? It's also the case of Ecuador, which is one of the, the countries that has been hit the hardest right now by uh, coronavirus. Um, there's an estimate somewhere, usually somewhere around 700,000 Venezuelans are in Ecuador at one given moment. But Ecuador tends to be a country of passage, not one where Venezuelans tend to stay, which is not the case of Peru. A lot of Venezuelans have aimed for Peru. And, you know, there's around 700,000 to a million in Peru, which also has serious, serious difficulties in their health system. And then in Brazil, the, um, the amount is smaller, but it is affecting a very remote area of Brazil with very low state capacities to, wield the situ to deal with the situation and where that small amount of Venezuelans, which is around 40 to 50,000, ends up being around 20, 25% of the actual population of the city, which is huge. I know that in several Latin American countries, there, there are slums and people live very close to one another. And obviously, we know that the coronavirus requires physical distancing. How is this? I mean, that's not even possible in, in some countries, in some, some parts of the cities to, to do. And people 
obviously have to go to work and who's going to provide food and and that's that's one of the big dangers i guess those two points are probably the biggest challenges that Latin America is facing regarding the pandemic. In many of the countries, over half of the population works informally and they gain their living day to day. And if they don't work one day, they don't have food on the table that day. And then on top of that, you add the situation, the living conditions. You know, a lot of people living in very small spaces, there's no possibility for social distancing. So what's happening right now is that usually the middle class and upper classes, they're being able to accommodate themselves to the quarantine situation. Even in the case, you know, even though many are also affected by the job loss because a lot of companies will likely not survive the coronavirus. But in many cases, you know, these classes, they at least have the capability to say, well, I can buy two weeks or three weeks worth of food and stay home and try to live this out. And then you know, then try to figure it out or, you know, get some credit card debt or, you know, there's, they have more tools at their disposal, financial tools at their disposal Mm -hmm. to be able to cope with the situation. But there's a lot of growing social instability in many of the capitals in Latin America, because the governments are telling people, hey, you have to stop working, stay home and buy enough food to stay at home for two or three weeks. And when large part of your population can't buy food for one day, and you're telling them, you need to buy for two or three weeks it becomes a very tense situation Mm. and in some cities we're seeing you know looting or robberies or just people just completely saying you know we we're not going to respect the quarantine we need to go out and work Mm -hmm. but at the same time sometimes they find themselves in the situation which even if they seek out work there is no work because people are not hiring and so on yeah you need to need to find food the un has called for ceasefires around the world so i want to briefly mention Colombia, where the National Liberation Army has announced a ceasefire. Um, How do you think the situation will evolve after? Do you think they might return to a conflict after? Or what's the situation like now and how how it will evolve in the near future? The situation in Colombia is likely not going to see pacification in the short term. You might see a a ceasefire right now and, and it's because of very specific context. But the whole area is very unstable. In part, it has to do with what I was mentioning regarding mass Venezuelan migration. But also, we have to understand that the ELN is mainly operating out of Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And Venezuela has become this kind of like hub for criminal activity. And there you'll find ELN, you'll find uh, previous units from FARC, you'll find paramilitaries, you'll find colectivos, which are another form of paramilitaries in Venezuela. You'll find the military acting autonomously in certain regions. You'll find miners and there's drug trafficking, people trafficking, goods trafficking. There's all t- sorts of illegal activities that are occurring inside Venezuela. And that's impacting a lot of the countries in the region. And Colombia is one of the main affected ones because what ELN has managed to do is they operate from Venezuelan territory, they gain resources in Venezuelan territories, and then they go back into Colombian territory. So mm-hmm. even a ceasefire can be advantageous for them from a tactical point of view, which means, well, yeah. they go back to Venezuela, they continue with their regular activities linked to mining and to uh, trafficking of goods, and, and then they can go back to their operations in Colombia. So it is unlikely that this is going to have any lasting impact on peace in Colombia. On the contrary, I would say that this is going to affect negatively quite the situation in, in Colombia quite a bit. Um, finally, what, what's the situation like in Argentina? Because I know my colleague Al Matthews has, has been there and he has this special affection for the country and it's a large country too. Well, Argentina was in a tough situation before the coronavirus, mainly because the economic outlook was really poor. It's a new government that just came into power. There's a huge foreign debt and that's generating a lot of pressure. 
and the indicators were of growing poverty, uh, growing uh, lack of jobs. You know, the, the, the whole economic situation was pretty tough. And now with the pandemic, that's worsening quite a bit. And of all the projections, when you look at the main projections coming from a lot of the financial institutions around the world, one of the countries that is most likely going to be hit the hardest and it's going to see the largest contraction in its economy in 2020 because of the coronavirus is Argentina. Mm. And the main worry about by a lot of the political sectors in Argentina is what's going to be what's going to happen, not just regarding the capacity of the state to deal with the pandemic itself, but what happens when a lot of the regions in, in Argentina start to become unstable and people start protesting, looting, and, and, and this, you know, can really shake the ground for a recent government, you know, that's just gotten into power. So the outlook is quite negative. It's quite worrisome. And for the moment, the only positive indicator we've seen is that the government has been able to adequately react to the pandemic. And it's really trying to build up uh, the capacities in order to ensure uh, that at least it hits softer than in other countries in the region. But there is not enough financial tools to deal with the socioeconomic instability. I think if, if a government at least shows that it's trying, I think it's already um, kind of a, a positive step because even because even here in, in North America, you know, in Canada, for example, the government, there, there, there will be an econ economic impact but if the government is showing that it's trying to do something it, it might actually at least help a little bit so i hope argentina will and the government will, will kind of go through this um one last thing perhaps because we on in this series we focused a lot on misinformation and propaganda online and how leaders and you know perhaps extremist movements are trying to use this situation are we seeing a lot of misinformation and propaganda in various parts of of Latin America coming either from leaders or, or the population in general? Well, I mean, we, we're seeing a lot of misinformation in terms of lack of quality information being made accessible to a general populace, right? Mm -hmm. And this sometimes has to do with the state not being capable or not having the capacity to really uh, mainstream these messages that are important. And many times it has to do with public uh, safety announcements and so on. Uh, but at the same time, we're seeing a lot of the debate regarding what are the origins of the coronavirus mm -hmm. pandemic, right? You know, th there's the discourse of the Chinese virus and, uh, and, and there's the conspiracy theories. And, you know, there's conspiracy theories both uh, regarding, you know, it's, if it's something done by China, if it's done something by the United States. And we have a lot of presence of Russian media in, in Latin America. We also have a lot of presence of Chinese media. Mm -hmm. And they're not contributing to uh, resolve that misinformation information situation rather they're helping mainstream a lot of these conspiracy theories and a lot of the local political discourse is also being tainted by these you know uh these, these theories so what ends up happening is that not only we're finding ourselves in latin america in a debate or actually in an effort to try and convey adequate information to deal with the pandemic but also this constant effort in order to point out what's fake news, what's misinformation, what should be, shouldn't be going around uh, and, and making sure people are getting the right information. So it en ends up doubling the efforts uh, regarding the pandemic. Well, Andre, thank you so much for giving us this fantastic overview because I don't think we're hearing actually a lot uh, about Latin America because we're all focused on our our own country and our own population. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure.